I'm Will Harris, and today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Happy Monday and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger. Hi, everyone. And today's show is all about fermentation. Um, We are very, very lucky to be joined by uh, Sandor Katz, who is the author of many books, but most recently, uh, The Art of Fermentation, which has just been released by uh, Chelsea Green Publishing. Um, Sandor, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it is my pleasure to be with you. (laughs) Um, So... This is a fascinating book. I actually picked up a copy um, last uh, last weekend when I was in Vermont, and I just kind of like you know, it, it's it's. I, I haven't wanted to spend much time with my friends or family because I'm just like <laughs> into it. I keep wanting to like you know get into the next chapter, um, because you know fermentation for me obviously has always been sort of you know cheese centric, uh, being a cheesemonger. But fermentation really touches all aspects of uh, of food and and uh, and human culture. Um, so I was wondering if you could start off, um, you know, by just talking a little bit about that word culture, because you, you have a very sort of powerful definition of that word in relationship with it um, and how it relates to your art, but also human life in general. Well, yeah, I mean, culture is such a, um, you know, multi-layered word. And, you know, at the one level, we use the word culture, um, you know, to describe, for instance, the bacteria that we, um, you know, introduce into milk when we are uh, making yogurt, um, you know, or any other, um, you know, food where we're, uh, you know, introducing some specific, you know, type of organism or community of organisms. We call, we call the organisms that we're adding cultures. We, we call the act of introducing them um, culturing. And we use the same word to describe, uh, you know, language, literature, scientific knowledge, music, uh, belief systems, religious practices, and, you know, really the totality of, um, you know, all the things that people pass down from generation to generation. And I would say that, you know, as a group, these cultured foods, fermented foods, uh, you know, are more than incidental culinary novelties. I mean, they really are, uh, you know, in some ways at the core of our cultural identity. And, you know, the word culture itself comes from... Um, the Latin word for for cultivation. And so, you know, there's the sense that, um, um, you know, culture is a form of cultivation, beginning with cultivating the soil for the food that we eat, um, and, you know, on through all the other things that we have learned to, um, you know, to, 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 to cultivate in, in different ways. Um, but, but getting back to that, you know, original sense of cultivating the soil in agriculture, you know, I would say that, you know, agriculture would make no sense without, uh, without fermentation. I mean, how could people ever, um, you know, invest their time and their energy into crops that are ready at a certain moment of the year if they didn't have some ideas about how to preserve the harvest 
to feed them for the rest of the year. And that's, you know, that's the story of sauerkraut as much as that's the story of cheese. You know, cheese is, um, you know, milk, uh, one of the most perishable foods that, that we know, turned into a form that is stable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I love that. I mean, I feel like culture, you know, as you said, it implies a... It implies, uh, I mean, creativity in some sense because uh, you're you're taking something and 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 using your know-how to turn it into something else. Uh, it also implies a, a sort of a working together a symbiotic relationship, which is the method of passing knowledge down from one generation to another, or even the you know just the bacteria themselves working together to create you know these chemical changes that preserve the food and and make it more delicious. Um, so. I was ta- I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about microbes and about um, microbiology and the role that it plays in our daily lives because I feel like in in our culture in our in our you know <laughs> society we tend to think of microbes and bacteria as kind of dirty words and and you know people are always trying to find ways to make things more sterile and more clean and more germ free and so if you could talk a little bit about that and why we're crazy and uh and then a little bit about what role microbes play in our lives that would be great um sure um you know i think that you know we have all been raised uh you know in a cultural context that i describe as the war on bacteria we have all been indoctrinated into the war on bacteria and that is this, you know, idea that, um, you know, bacteria in general are dangerous and scary and our lives would be better and safer uh, if we could somehow eradicate all of them. Um, you know, there's nothing sexier that you could write on a bottle of soap than kills 99.9% of bacteria. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and this is a really misguided notion that our lives would be better without bacteria because, you know, in fact, um, you know, we and all other forms of life are descended from bacteria. And, um, you know, we have never, you know, no animal, no plant, no fungus has ever functioned without bacteria. Um, uh, you know, in our own bodies, uh, you know, biologists who count the cells of our bodies have come to the conclusion that, you know, our, uh, the number of cells that we each possess that reflects our unique individual DNA code are actually outnumbered 10 to 1 by bacteria that we are host to. Um, and these bacteria are not, um, you know, parasites or, or, or even getting a free ride. I mean, these bacteria are, are enabling us to function in the world. Uh, bacteria enable us to digest food. Enable, uh, bacteria um, uh, enable us to um, um, uh, access the nutrients that are in our food. Bacteria synthesize nutrients that are essential to our well-being. Um, human beings would not be able to effectively reproduce uh, uh, you know, without uh, uh, bacteria um, uh, being part of the of the picture, and it's becoming clearer and clearer that bacteria regulate many other physiological processes, uh, most specifically what we call our immune system. There was actually some new research this year that demonstrated that when you have an infection in your lung and your body uh, uh, responds to that with an immune response, uh, um, uh, white blood cells uh, and, and, and the such, that it's actually gut bacteria that mediate that response. So in you know, many different ways, 
bacteria enable us to function effectively in the world, and we could not survive or reproduce or effectively digest food without them. Um, and this, you know, this idea, I mean, without denying that there exist bacteria that can make us sick, um, uh, you know, this, this generalized idea that bacteria are, are, are dangerous is very misguided because really what protects us from the relatively small number of bacteria that have the potential to, um, you know, create infections or disease in our bodies are the are the rest of the bacteria that we're able to coexist very well with because they create a competitive environment that uh, makes it very difficult for the pathogens that we encounter in our, in our daily lives to establish themselves in our bodies. That's really that's really interesting. I feel like especially, you know, being in the world of cheese, um, where I feel like the cheesemakers, especially here in the United States, are constantly under fire, uh, raw milk cheesemakers, I should say, um, for, you know, using raw milk, which is seen as, uh, you know, a sort of potentially very dangerous substance. And so I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit more about the, the balance that you were talking about of bacteria. And it's not saying that, you know, these bad bacteria are not going to be present because they are. It's just a, a matter, of course, that they're going to be around. But how having that sort of multitude of bacteria can actually be beneficial as opposed to the opposite. Um, yeah, I mean, in, ter- in terms of, of foods, well, I mean, every raw food, you know, has indigenous microbial populations. And, you know, the, 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 the story of the evolution of, of cheeses in different places around the world you know, as well as of, um, uh, you know, sauerkraut and of wine and of salamis and of, you know, a vast multitude of different, uh, you know, fermented foods and beverages that people enjoy all around the world is people learning how to work with the microbes that are indigenous to different foods. And, you know, the milk of healthy animals um, you know, is, is dominated by lactic acid bacteria that sour milk in a very reliable way, and it is that souring which protects milk from potentially pathogenic organisms. It's almost like, you know, milk, like many other types of foods, has a built-in uh, safety system. You know, that's how, that's how foods evolve. Like, if, if foods are Russian roulette, then people don't eat them. Um, you know, foods that prove themselves over time as being safe are the foods that, you know, our ancestors, um, you know, d- d- developed a relationship with and, and, and cultivated over time. What happened in the 19th century that made people start to perceive milk as a dangerous food is really urbanization and the, and, and, and the fact that there was demand for, for more and more milk and, uh, and prior to the advent of refrigeration, dairies had to be really close to where the, the markets for milk were. And so what they did was, um, you know, cut out pastures. They, they, they started confining more and more animals in less and less space. Um, and, you know, yes, in fact, when, when you deny, um, you know, cows or goats or other, um, uh, you know, ruminant mammals, um, you know, access to pasture, then, you know, they are not able to maintain good health. And the milk of animals that are not healthy, um, you know, is full of, you know, all sorts of organisms that can be pathogenic. 
Um, and so, you know, as, as, a, as a response to that, as a, as a salvage protocol for the milk of unhealthy animals, pasteurization was, was introduced. And pasteurization is, is a very effective means of, uh, you know, salvaging the milk of unhealthy animals. But we can't confuse that with, you know, the qualitative distinction between healthy animals and unhealthy animals and the milk that comes out of healthy animals, which really has its own, um, you know, built-in defense uh, uh, systems. So that's really interesting. So for milk, yeah, uh, that that uh, you know transition towards urban populations definitely. Uh, you know, there was a reason for pasteurization. Um, you know, and and uh, back in the in the early 1900s and uh, and onward. Um, could you talk a little bit about? You said you know this war on bacteria. When did it really start um, for you? And is it different for different food groups, or um, was it kind of a sudden change in our culture? Well, I mean, I think it's the emergence of the field of microbiology, uh, you know, which we're beginning with the work of, of, of Louis Pasteur in the 1860s. Um, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, after his initial work, which was um, um, uh, for the winemaking industry in, in, in France, um, you know, he started uh, uh, turning his attention to infectious diseases and identifying, um, you know, some, uh, like the, the earliest triumphs of the emerging field of microbiology was identifying, uh, you know, bacteria that were responsible for, uh, you know, different types of um, um, uh, 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 infectious diseases, um, you know, and then later developing uh, antibi- antibiotic compounds to, uh, 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 to, to treat and prevent those kinds of bacterial infections. But, but because that was the earliest um, um, triumph of the field of microbiology, that's what um, uh, took hold in the popular imagination um, as, um, you know, what bacteria were. Bacteria are things that make us sick. And bacteria can make us sick, but it's really only a very small portion of bacteria that have the potential to make us sick. And really the best, uh, you know, uh, defenses that we have against bacterial infections and bacterial illnesses, you know, are the bacteria that, um, you know, that, that, that we coexist with and that, you know, sort of, um, um, you know, uh, enable us to uh, function and, and be balanced in, in the world. Now, one other thing that I want to raise in relation to cheeses is, you know, uh, um, you know cheeses which evolved in specific uh, uh, environments, you know, like, like any traditional indigenous fermented foods, um, were the products of communities of microorganisms. Um, you know, in, in our time, um, you know, with the development of the field of microbiology, it's generally assumed that, you know, we only want the most specific um, individual microorganisms that have a specific functional purpose to be introduced, and otherwise we want our food to be completely free of microorganisms. And unfortunately, you know, most of the, you know, sort of um, uh, traditional ferments, uh, you know, part of their deliciousness and their flavor complexity, you know, is the fact that they are products of these, you know, complex communities of microorganisms working together. And a, a, a lot of the uh, foods that are in contemporary production, uh, rather than being based on these sort of, you know, complex uh, communities of organisms, are based on just introducing specific organisms which have been deemed to be the ones that are, um, um, you know, most uh, um, uh, specifically functional for creating the foods that we want. 
Um, so, so, so whereas, you know, most cheeses historically have been products of, you know, broad communities of organisms, um, you know, today mostly, uh, you know, with the exception of raw milk cheeses, it's only in specific um, single organisms or a couple of organisms that are introduced for a specific functional purpose, and we're, and we're sort of um, um, uh, uh, losing the rest of the community. And, and, and really, there's, there, there, there is a loss of um, you know, not only flavor complexity, but biodiversity. And that's actually something I wanted to get into a, a little bit more, if we could. Um, last week on the show, we were talking to a woman who, uh, Rin Caputo, who sells mozzarella curd, and it's um, she uses fermented curd. And I was wondering, and she was kind of, you know, talking about how the flavor was much tastier, and, and she really liked that component of it. And I was wondering if you could talk about uh, and maybe explain a little bit more for our listeners uh, wild fermentation as opposed to, I guess, the, the opposite of that and what that means on, you know, a microbial level and what that means on kind of a, a taste level uh, as well. Well, I mean, the reason why these, you know, complex communities of organisms, uh, you know, create more complex flavors is that, um, you know, each different microbial strain creates some unique metabolic byproducts that, that, that you know, translate into flavors. Um, so, um, you know, something, some, any, a food that is produced by a single organism being added just never has the kind of flavor complexity, um, uh, you know, a, a, of a food that's created by, um, you know, a, a broad community of, of, of organisms. And, and, and it really, you know, it, it really is due to, um, you know, fewer metabolic byproducts. And each of those metabolic byproducts, um, you know, has a flavor to it. That's... Um that's really interesting. We actually had a guest on our show, um, gosh, probably about six months ago now. Her name's Rachel Dutton. Um, she's I was just thinking about Rachel Dutton. I mean, she, she is, you know, she's a biologist who's doing all this work about biodiversity and the loss of biodiversity in, in cheeses. Yeah, yeah, and, and cheese rinds. And, and it just leads me to think, you know, and you said microbiology, the, the field kind of led to everyone's, you know, current fear of bacteria. Do you think that, um, you know, people like Rachel could actually help the future of biodiversity in the microbial community um, by, you know, sort of demystifying these relationships and sort of shedding more light on how they work and why they're beneficial for us? Um, absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the work that she's doing is really, is, is really uh, path-breaking. And, um, you know, there, there are a number of microbiologists who are, you know, who are really, um, you know, sort of looking at the direction that that field has gone in and, um, uh, and, and questioning that. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there, there's a lot of, you know, exciting new um, ideas emerging in microbiology. I mean, one exciting idea is that, um, uh, you know, our concept of species that we, uh, you know, that we apply to the natural world in terms of, you know, plant species, animal species, that this does not even apply to bacteria, that there's a single super species of bacteria um, that has, that because ba bacteria are, are, are very genetically fluid. They can shed genes that are not necessary. Um, um, uh, if they can find them in their environment, they can take on uh, uh, different genes. So, so, so there's a huge amount of uh, uh, flexibility in bacterial genetics, and, and there's this emerging idea that there's just one super species of bacteria that can sort of take 
many shapes depending on the genetics available to them and the metabolic needs of a particular environmental niche. Um, so, you know, they're, 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 the world of biology right now is, or microbiology is, is full of, um, you know, exciting new ideas and, uh, and, and new frontiers. But, um, but, you know, definitely the, you know, dominant uh, world view about bacteria right now is just, you know, kill them all and everyone will be better off. Um, and that is very, very misguided and, uh, and, and dangerous, you know, not to mention the fact that it's, you know, resulting in these, uh, you know, kind of homogenized foods with really diminished flavors. So what do you have to say about the increase, and if there's any correlation at all, the increase in sort of um, food allergies and food sensitivity that we see all the time, whether it's gluten or peanut butter or, you know, whatever the next thing is. Um, do you think there's a correlation between this lack of biodiversity and these types of, uh, of you know, conditions? Well, that's definitely one of the theories. I mean, I really, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know enough about, um, you know, ab- about, you know, physiology and those health problems to, you know, know more than that that's one of the ideas of what, what's causing them. Um, I actually, the, the other week, I was at a, um, a, a conference, conference about autism, teaching people about fermenting vegetables. Um, because one of the theories uh, um, uh, uh, explaining the you know dramatic rise in the incidence of um, uh, of, of autism, you know, one in 150 children born today gets diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. Um, one of the you know theories about that is that it's a crisis of gut bacteria, uh, which is also one of the theories uh, uh, explaining uh, you know the rise of um, uh, uh, food allergies uh, and a number of you know. That's even one of the theories uh, um, that may explain the epidemic of obesity. I mean, there are so many, um, you know, major new health problems that, that, that might tie in to the fact that, um, you know, that, that, that um, yeah, for a number of reasons, I mean, chemical exposure to antibiotics, antibacterial cleansing products, chlorinated water, um, you know, eating so much processed dead food instead of living food populated with bacteria, um, children uh, uh, living in more protected environments where they don't get as much exposure to um, uh, soil and dirt and animals, um, you know, all, all these different ways that, that we are being deprived of bacterial exposure which actually stimulates our immune development. Um, so, so, you know, just, you know, many huge, health, uh, you know, uh, uh, public health epidemics may be explained by this. Like, I don't know enough to, you know, to, to, to say with any certainty that they are or are not. But I think it's very interesting that, that gut bacteria, uh, you know, is playing into the discussions of what might be causing uh, these, you know, very varied uh, uh, problems. Absolutely. And I, so that kind of segues in. I mean, that's, that's initially how you got into fermentation, right? Um, for, for health reasons. I was wondering if you could tell, tell our listeners a little bit about that, about your own personal journey. How did you discover fermentation and what did it, you know, what did it do for you? Well, 
Sure. I mean, it's honestly not how I got interested in fermentation. Um, But I I have been living with with HIV for 21 years. And, um, uh, you know, I I feel like I've been remarkably uh, healthy. And I feel like, uh, you know, the fact that I uh, eat lots of fermented foods, although I certainly don't eat exclusively fermented foods, I eat all sorts of things. Um, but, But, you know, I think that the fact that I eat lots of fermented foods has something to do with my overall health and well-being. Um, I am very wary of making, um, you know, particular health claims on behalf of sauerkraut or raw milk cheeses or yogurt or any other particular food or even these, these foods in general. Um, but I think that, um, you know, they, they, they really can contribute to anyone's overall health without claiming that they cure cancer or that they cure AIDS or that they, you know, will resolve any other particular problem. I think that they have the potential to improve, you know, any person's ability to digest food effectively, to extract nutrients from those foods, um, and to uh, uh, overall immune functioning. Um, uh, you know, that, 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 that all seems pretty well established. And in my own life, um, you know, I, I had a health crisis uh, some years ago. I've been on um, antiretroviral drugs ever since then. And, and, you know, certainly I can credit them to a certain degree with, uh, with my continued well-being. Um, but, you know, many people who I've met who are on the kinds of drugs that I'm on have uh, chronic digestive problems as a side effect from them, and I've never experienced that. Um, you know, I think that that has something to do with, um, uh, you know, eating lots of live culture foods. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that they are part of, um, you know, maintaining overall good health without claiming any specific um, curative benefit of them for them. Great. Absolutely. Well, so I, I, well, I beg your apology for being presumptuous that that was the reason that you got into fermented food. Um, <laughs> well, well, what I, I mean, I grew up in New York City, and just as a, as a child, before I ever heard the word fermentation, sour pickles were my favorite food. <laughs> and I just have always been drawn to this flat flavor of lactic acid. You know, I can't, I can't explain it. It's just, it's just a flavor that I love. Um, in my 20s, I followed a macrobiotic diet for a few years, and mac- Macrobiotics is what first introduced me to the idea that there is digestive benefit to, uh, to, to eating uh, fermented foods, and in particular live culture foods like, uh, like pickles and sauerkraut um, and yogurt and kefir. Um, and it was only when I, when I moved from New York City to rural Tennessee and got involved in keeping a garden um, that, that I actually started uh, investigating how to ferment food myself at home, and that was really in response to the you know, practical problem that gardeners everywhere face, which is, you know, all of the radishes are ready at once, all of the cabbages are ready right. at once, um, and so, you know, fermentation is a, uh, a practical response to what do you do with that abundance, just as cheese making is a practical response to, you know, what do you do with your abundance of milk? Um, you turn it into something that is more, uh, that's more stable, which is cheese. Yeah. Well, so... I, you know, cheese, I think about pickles, I think about sauerkraut, yes, wine, yes, bread, sure, beer. But your book is amazing because it really goes across the entire globe and you found, I mean, basically every culture in the world employs fermentation in some form of their right. of their food. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, a quick survey of, of the way that people ferment food around the world and maybe talk about some of the things that we might not be quite as familiar with in our just day-to-day eating? 
Um, sure. Well, I, you know, I do not know about every culinary tradition that, that exists on this earth, but I have been looking really far, uh, really hard for a counterexample, an example of a culinary tradition that does not incorporate fermentation. And after 15 years of looking, I can't find any. Um, and, you know, because, you know, all of the raw products of agriculture, um, you know, have bacteria and fungi on them, there is a certain inevitability to microbial changes to our food. And in fact, you know, almost all of the food that we discard, we discard because of microbial changes to our food that seem undesirable. That's what rotten food is. That's what spoiled food is. Um, but because there's this, this inevitability, you know, cultures around the world have had to find ways to work with microorganisms because that's what's on their food. Even before, you know, there were microscopes or, uh, you know, specific organisms had been identified, you know, people had to find strategies to, um, you know, effectively store their food, to store it in ways that would make their food more stable, more digestible, more delicious, um, you know, rather than just, you know, turning into a, a, a rotting mess. So, you know, that's what fermentation is in different cultures around the world. And the manifestations are, are very different. I mean, in the, you know, in the Arctic regions, people uh, in the summertime, um, um, uh, people uh, create a, a, a pits of fish. Um, that ferment, and in the winter, when the when the waterways are are not accessible, they eat the fish, which has you know which has fermented in the meantime, um, and that is a survival food in the northern parts of the world. And people would not be able to inhabit those regions of the world if they hadn't figured out how to effectively store fish to feed them through the long winter. Um, in the tropics, ferments are very different. Um, uh, you know, one, uh, one food which is really a, a, you know, a, a, a critically important daily staple in many of the equatorial regions of the world is cassava. Well, some, um, uh, 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 some varieties of cassava, bitter cassava, um, have high levels of cyanide. If people just ate the roots unprocessed, they would die. They're poisonous. Um, uh, so the way people make, uh, you know, this, this, you know, important carbohydrate source uh, edible is by chopping it up in pieces and soaking it in water for about five days. And what that does is initiates a fermentation that transforms the cyanide into a benign form and renders the, the, the starchy roots edible. And that's how, you know, a billion people living around the equator survive is, is, is by eating that root processed by fermentation. So the applications of, 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 of fermentation are very different in different parts of the world. Um, you know, but, you know, the, the, the basic idea of, um, you know, harnessing microbes to make food, um, you know, less toxic, more digestible, more storable, or more delicious um, is, is, is used, you know, as far as I can tell, everywhere. And that's what I've tried to do in this book is just um, you know, identify some of the patterns that people use around the world and, and um, you know, give, uh, give, give some sort of descriptive information on, on how you could try making lots of these different foods and beverages in your home. And which brings me to another thing that I want to talk <laughs> about. Um, fermenting your own food is quite economical, isn't it? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, some, some, some more than others. Um, but, but, but absolutely. I mean, you know, to, let, let's talk about sauerkraut. 
You know, if you want to, if you want to go buy, um, you know, live culture uh, uh, fermented vegetables commercially, you know, it's going to cost you something like, um, you know, between uh, about seven and ten dollars a pint. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, a pint of, of fermented vegetables takes about a pound of vegetables. You could go to the store and buy that pound of vegetables. You know, let's say it's you know organic biodynamic vegetables. You know, maybe it'd be two fifty, three dollars, something like that. Then you take it home, chop it up. Um, you know, it'll take you like ten or fifteen minutes. Um, you know, sprinkle it with a little bit of salt, mix it up with your hands, and squeeze it until it's nice and juicy, and stuff it into a jar and ferment it yourself. So you know, there you you've spent uh, you know a third or a fourth of what it costs at the store to make it yourself. Um, and you know, like 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 most foods, you know, you save money if you do it yourself. Uh, but but even more than saving money, you know, you can tailor it to the to the flavors you like. You can season it the way you like it. You could make it less salty or more salty. You could ferment it longer and develop a more acidic flavor, or shorter and make a milder flavor. I mean, you know, one of the beautiful things about making anything yourself is you can make it the way you like it, not the way someone else thinks it should be. And it's way more fun. And you yeah. get to show and off to all your friends fun. all the uh, good you stuff you made. And the magic of, you know, connecting with these microorganisms and, um, and, 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 and learning how to work with them. So um, do you do, uh, I, I feel like I've, I've heard about you doing different kinds of education workshops and fermentation, you know, classes around the country. Can you talk a little bit about the work you've done that way? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that, that's really what led me into writing the second book about fermentation. As I, my first book, Wild Fermentation, was, uh, I wrote it in 2003, and at the time that I, or it was published in 2003, I really wrote it in 2001. And, you know, I had been obsessed with fermentation for nearly a decade by the time I wrote that and had, you know, tried lots of things myself, um, you know, uh, 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 shared them with lots of people and gotten feedback on them, but it was, you know, mostly a solitary pursuit. Um, in the time since that book was published, I have taught hundreds and hundreds of workshops, um, you know, mostly around North America, but, a, but a, a, a little bit in other parts of the world. And, um, you know, as a result of just, you know, talking to thousands of people about this topic, um, you know, I've, I've, I've just heard so many people's stories of what their grandparents used to do, or memories of fermented foods from the old country that, that haven't really transplanted themselves here, um, and also heard the problems that people encountered, you know, uh, what went wrong with people's sauerkraut or with their yogurt making or with their cheese making experiments. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it's enabled me to, um, um, you know, gain some more insight into what problems people sometimes encounter so that I can, you know, help people anticipate those problems. And, you know, that's really what made me decide it was time to write another book. I'd learned about all these different ferments. I'd experimented a lot more widely and gotten to answer lots and lots of people's questions. I, I, I run workshops. I have a website, wildfermentation.com. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have a workshop going right now, and my students are chopping cabbage as, as we are talking. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when, 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 when we're done with this conversation, I'm going to go down, and we're going uh, we're, we're to finish making some sauerkraut and some kimchi, which is the you know, sort of Korean style of fermented vegetables. 
Oh, both are utterly, utterly delicious. Well, I'm just looking at the clock here too, and it seems that we've run out of time, which I always seem to do. But um, thank you so much for taking yeah. the time to be on the show. And I would encourage all of our listeners to go grab a copy of The Art of Fermentation by Sandor Katz. It is just an amazing, comprehensive book um, and you know, uh, fascinating as well as very practical. Um, so thank you again for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, and let me just let me just say what my website is: wildfermentation.com. And if people want to uh, want information on the workshops that I teach, uh, that's where you'll find it. Absolutely, and if they want to purchase the book, um, is there any specific uh, uh, sort of avenue that you uh, recommend over others, or just go well, ask you your local bookstore? Well, you can purchase it off of my website, wildfermentation.com, and that that would be great. Or if you have a like a local bookstore you'd like to patronize, why don't you ask them if they would uh, if they would stock the book? Um, you know, or you can find it at Barnes and Noble or Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. Fantastic. Well, Great. thank you again so much. Um, I feel like we've learned a lot, and uh, I'm inspired. I'm going to go home and ferment something. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Well, we'll be back next Monday with another episode of Cutting the Curd. Till then, enjoy something fermented. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.